The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of So Very Wrong About Games. What you're about to hear was recorded live in front of an audience at Shocks Expo in Vancouver. And as you may have heard from my travelogues, the audio quality is uh, dubious at best. We offer our sincere thanks to, among others, Mark Posada at Board Game Barrage and other people who have helped us with editing. And we've done the best we can, but it's still a little rough. With those provisos, we hope you enjoy the show, which was guest hosted by Shut Up and Sit Down's very own Quinton Smith. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. How's everyone enjoying the convention so far? Shucks. 19. What a great convention, right? We have, one the, we have one of these at home. It's all just dedicated about gaming, not about, you know, publishers or whatever. I love how diverse, you know, the, the membership is. Love it. Was a little worried. I got into the Vancouver airport to see the great, you know, Aboriginal artwork. And then I saw a totem pole. And I thought maybe I landed in Manitoba by mistake. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Too soon, too soon. Mark, bingo cards. Yes, we're, uh, we're introducing so, uh, so Very Wrong About Games Bingo. On your seats, you have the bingo card. Whenever you hear an instance of one of those things occurring, either cross it off with a pen or you can just use the edge of your badge to punch a hole. I'm sure, given how predictable and talentless we are, we're going to run through a lot of these things because we've only got a couple bits. If you get bingo, it's a simple two-step process. First of all, stand up and shout bingo, because that's part of bingo. It's what it is. And then uh, go see our lovely assistant over there who's got wonderful prizes. I don't want to spoil anything. Wow. But there's some actually good stuff in there. Uh, most of it gaming-related, all of it swag-related. So best of luck, uh, and to the victor go the spoils. All right. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. It's a big board gaming podcast about board games. On today's show, I'm here with my great friend Mark Bigney and our special guest, 
host, Quint. How are you doing today, Quint? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for showing up. All right, so as is the case on most shows, we're going to change everything up like we usually do. We're going to have our usual banter. We're going to have some banter at the beginning. We're going to talk about some games we played this week. We're going to talk about some news and why it doesn't matter. We're not going to do a theme or a feature game, but we're going to take some uh, questions that some listeners submitted to us. But before we do any of that, we have to write some horrific wrongs that are in this convention center at this very moment. There's something called the Shut Up and Sit Down li- Game Library, which it is not, <laughs> because it does not have a copy of the greatest game ever, Tigris and Euphrates, which I am rectifying right now. Oh my goodness. So there we go. So now, those people who have not tried the greatest game of all time can do so. I've never been given a gift that feels so much like a slight. Thank you very much. <laughs> We're very good at passive aggression here. It's a Canadian thing. <laughs> On the topic of Canadian things, uh, first of all, I'd like to air my grievances. I think this is the appropriate time. Uh, it was my understanding that at this convention I was going to be hosted about on a palanquin like Billy Porter at the Met Gala, and I've had to walk <laughs> everywhere like a pleb, and so my future contracts are going to have to reflect that. Secondly, Quinn's, uh, nobody told me that Walker was going to be here, and uh, so that was really awkward. But. Uh, I am, however, sort of the unofficial Anglophone representative of La Francophonie, coming from Quebec. Uh, so as a diplomatic gift, I have prepared a special envoy package for our dear host, and Quince has been so good to us. So, with that in mind... Oh, wow. We have acquired the, the quintessential uh, French-Canadian gift, which is to say Vachon snack cakes. So here we have the Joe-Louis Le Demi. I recognize that some people prefer the full, the full but I prefer Le Demi, the half. I've, okay, for the people at home listening to this uh, as a podcast, I've been handed a package that can only be described as uniquely brown. <laughs> uh, uh, this it's is, brown all the way through, sir. It's brown. <laughs> uh, I, can I open this and, and consume Absolutely. while you continue? There's more. Ooh. Because we are proud of our culture in Quebec and we always believe in excess. Anyone who's tried croton or, uh, or breakfast in Montreal can attest to that. Here we have my personal favorite, the Ah, Caramel. <laughs> it's uncertain based on the punctuation whether this is delight or perhaps surprise, shock, and alarm. <laughs> ah, caramel. And then finally, not my favorite of the cakes, but definitely the one that best captures my current sentiments at the moment, particularly with respect to our dear host. We have... Wait for it. The tension. You cut- the passion flaky. Which you can find in almost any Canadian supermarket east of the Ottawa River. There's the Three Fruits one, but that's an abomination. This is the Pomme Framboise Passion Flaky. And please, Quinns, I say this in all due sincerity, as a man who can now say that he is the third most important member of a two-man team, <laughs> except ma passion. Oh, wow. I, I, well, first off, thank you. Uh, also, again, I, I feel like the need to describe these packages for the people listening to this podcast. Um, you know when board game designers who, who don't necessarily have much experience with InDesign and Illustrator feel the need to design the boxes of their games? Um, I, you know, I'm not sure where I was going on with that. Let's, let's move on to the next segment on the podcast. Uh, you were insulting my culture and my people, and it has been registered. I was doing no such thing, good sir. However, ooh, look, they're individually packaged. Now, I'm going to do something which will potentially cause our volunteers to be upset. Uh... So I, I, my understanding is that during American or North American sports games, sometimes things are fired into the crowd. Uh, typically by cannon, but uh, in, in a pinch, an arm will do. Okay. Oh, look, wow. Board game. You, 
What does it say that Board Game Barrage were the first three to immediately put their hands up? Here we go. I've got more. Look, here, we're just gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do this. Fire it up. Unlike. Oh, look unlike, out. unlike King Lear, He's I am firmly of the opinion right, that a gift right. is just to be enjoyed and done with whatever you want. So. I'm so glad we're doing a live panel and we're <laughs> facing this way. Usually when we do the podcast, Mark and I have to face each other and I get to do a whole hour without looking at Mark. So that's fantastic. <laughs> the other thing which is also fantastic is that you actually get to hear me, unlike the usual podcast where Mark edits out everything I say. <laughs> and I get to listen to a sultry, beautiful British accent throughout the whole thing. No love for my accent, of course. I have quite honestly never felt more welcome as a guest on a podcast. Thank you both so much. I'm genuinely quite touched. Oh, you're very welcome. Now, the other thing I want to talk about quickly before we go on to the games we played this week, unless people have somebody else, is I just wanted to hear... Well, I talked to Mark about this, but he didn't really give too much into it. Because we're changing it from a two-person podcast to a three-person podcast. Mm. Yeah, from now on, you'll be moving back to Kingston yeah. with us, right? Oh, okay. And I'm just wondering, you have a lot of uh, experience doing this. I'm just wondering, when I listen to a bunch of things that seem to turn all the discussions into an argument with one person being the arbitrator as opposed to, uh, you know, a discussion back and forth. I'm just wondering if you've, you've found that that happens a lot. Uh, oh, you, uh, sorry. Uh, can you explain the question one more time? So when, when it's two people, it's usually just a discussion back and forth. Yes. But when you add a third person, they just, one of the people migrate into being a, an adjudicator on a certain subject and the other two it gets a, like a much more heated argument as opposed to it would be if it was just the two of them. Well, you know, I feel well, we have something more like a, a sort of functional parliamentary society now, right? Because there's, there's no way that we can be, we can, we can have uh, sort of stalemates. Now, someone will be objectively correct. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to the Westminster model. <laughs> All right, do you guys have anything you want to start in with before maybe some, we go into some games? Maybe or? some games. I think this is All a gaming right. podcast. Let's talk about some games. Mark, what do you have as your first game you played this week? So one of the first things I did at the con was I got to play a game of Irish Gage with a swagger, and that was a great experience. Uh, I'm, for those of you that are unaware, there's an entire subculture within our subculture of train gamers. They're kind of cult-like. Uh, they only speak in code. Uh, they only communicate in four digits at a time. It's very, very striking. So I've never quite gone off the deep end in that, but the, the cube rails systems tend to be these 45 to 60s finished games of brutal economic manipulation, and where the most vicious, combative thing you can do is simply start an auction, and that is right up my alley. The first <laughs> one I tried was Wabash Cannonball, which was then reprinted as uh, Chicago Express by Queen Games, so John Bohr is a legend in that, that particular sphere, an interesting guy, and Irish Gage was put out under Winsome Games originally by Tom Russell, who then founded Hollenspiel, which itself is a fascinating little outfit. Irish Gage is wonderful. In many ways, it's extremely reminiscent of Wabash Cannonball, with all the same kind of brutal margin calls, but without the possibility of losing before the game starts. Because in Wabash Cannonball, if you mess up the initial stock offering, well, it's going to be a 45-minute game, but you're not going to be involved in it. Uh, whereas <laughs> in Irish Gage, there are minimum bids, and there's this notion of the economy working a little bit less in a fragile way. So I was a huge fan of Irish Gage. We played in the beautiful new Capstone edition, uh, and I've, uh, I've, so, I've had mixed history with Tom Russell designs, but they've always been interesting. And it's been a while since I played a cube rail game. It was great to go back to it. Irish Gage is the highest possible recommendation. If you've ever been curious about 18xx games, but don't feel like losing your entire lifestyle, 
and if you haven't tried any Cube Rail games, it has my highest possible recommendation for, again, just the quality of the auctions and the nature of the economic decisions. Utterly marvelous. Well, uh, that's something of a... Uh, uh, <clears throat> I always find that um, I'm, I'm struck by the exhaustive knowledge pool uh, that I'm now going to pollute with, uh, with my, with my uh, comparatively youthful experience with board games. I played a card game called Mandala uh, recently, which took the top of my head off for being, um, uh, for being better than... Usually, I, it's too much to hope for that a card game can be beautiful and striking and also be as, as strong as some of my favorite card games. This is a card game by Lookout Games, designed by Treasure ben- Benjamin and Brett Gilbert. Um, Mandala is a two-player-only game that uses uh, a cloth mat, and uh, you roll this out, and then you have a deck of square cards. So we've got innovation upon innovation. Uh, the cards display uh, sort of kaleidoscopic patterns, but really, there are just six cards, six different colors of cards. And then you have two sort of what are called mountains on the board. But on your turn, you're going to be playing cards from your hand to one of these mountains. Now, this is slightly difficult to describe and I would imagine for your audience envision, but you can play one of the six cards of cards to the center of the mountain, which is you saying, these are the cards that will be available when the mountain scores. Or you can play a color of cards to your side of the mountain, which determines which player chooses colors first from the middle of the mountain when it scores. However, the catch is that of the six colors in the game, a mountain scores when it has all six colors. But when you play a color to one of the mountains, that color cannot be played to either, to either of the two other zones. Which means, if you, like, let's say you want a black card from the mountain, you're going to have to play it into the middle. But that then means you can't play black cards on your or your opponent's side of the board. So eventually the mountain will be scored. And when it's scored, players will take all of the colors from the middle, starting with the player who has more cards on their side of the mountain. And then scoring, as is often the case with card games, is where things get particularly uh, thought-provoking. So the colors you take, if you have not taken that color yet at this point in the game, um, like let's say you take two blacks from the mountain and you haven't taken a black yet, that first black card will go in your sort of rack of, again, six colors along the bottom of the board. So So the first color you take from a mountain will go in the number one slot. Let's say it's a black. All future blacks you take will instead go into what's called your cup, which is your scoring area, which means if black's the first color you take, any future blacks will go into your cup, but they'll all only be worth one point. So when the game starts, let's say if you look in your cup, if you've got two greens, you desperately need green to be only collected by you later. But of course, now let's reverse all the way back to the beginning, because this is also just a game of hand management. So when you're playing cards, you are enormously restricted by what colors you're holding. And while you don't want to do it, it is a game that is thought-provoking and tricky enough that you might pass your turn just to junk cards, just to hope that you might draw a different color. But of course, you're not doing this once with one mountain. You've got two mountains going concurrently at one time. And we just played back-to-back games of this, myself and Matt, because um, it was that kind of... Sometimes what I'm looking for a card game is, is mystery. And what was nice about Mandala is every game we played, we were both having this moment of going... Oh, I get it now. Oh, I get it now. And that was on game three or four. We were still just piecing together how deep the puzzle went. So that's Mandala, and I could not have been more impressed, honestly. I was going to wonder, how long does it take to play? Uh, it's probably just a 20-minute game. Mm-hmm. It's a 20-minute game where, uh, ooh, you know, the decisions you make at the beginning are tricky, but it's got that lovely ramp-up that you find in-game, you know, great card games like Arboretum or anything else you hear to mention, where uh, the decisions you make at the beginning, while they are still important, only get more important. So the game does have that nice sense of escalation where when a 20-minute game ends, you're kind of relieved because the decisions were just too horrible at that point. 
Um, and then you're able to reset. And again, resetting and playing again immediately is exciting because you know the beginning of the game is at least easy. And then remember, this is all happening on a cloth mat with lovely, pretty square cards. And perhaps maybe my biggest surprise, uh, after, uh, we just recently uh, covered Combo Fighter on Shut Up and Sit Down, which is a card game with large tarot-sized cards. When I unpacked Mandala and saw small square cards, I thought, hey, it's not going to be nice to hold little square cards. Turns out it is. <laughs> Turns out this hobby has uh, more secrets that I have yet to understand. We've been complaining of late, well, me mostly, I do most of the complaining, that we don't have, a, we, we don't find a lot of time for two-player games much. And, you know, the short, delightful 20-minute two-player card game really is a, a very fertile ground. We recently played Airland and Sea. We were very pleased with that. Oh, Airland and Sea is superb. It, it's, it's a marvelous, marvelous game. All those games that get so much mileage out of a, a small rule set and a shorter deck of cards, uh, I, it's one of the reasons why I wish I had more time for, for just two-player games. Mm-hmm. Especially I, if I had anyone else to play two-player games with. But. Yeah, it's a shame that you two just don't get along because I would. Unst- I mean, it would be so convenient, especially if you have a podcast. Not yeah, really. Yeah. You'd have to spend more time with him. <laughs> I got to play a game called Warband Against the Darkness. You would think that that was some sort of Metallica song, but it's not. It's a 2015 game by Micaiah Fuller. It's been compared to the poor man's Hansa Teutonica, which fills me with rage that this game thinks it can be compared to the greatest game of all time. So what you do in Warband Against the Darkness is that you have all these different fantasy factions that you pick at the beginning, and why it's why it's compared to is because you all have these tableaus that you're going to be taking cubes off. That upgrade your Not actions. a tableau, Walker. The, the internet has spoken with one voice that you don't know what a tableau is, so why don't you just say player board? You upgrade your tableau. Sorry to, <laughs> sorry to interrupt, by the way. And you get to do that automatically at the beginning of your turn. Right? And yet, the, thing that, the things they do have that are interesting about it is that it has this giant army board, and you're, you're creating this you know, cavalry army, bowmen army, and everyone's feeding into it. Because there's this map board where all these enemies are building up. And you take a fight action and you add up all your guys and you have to have enough to fight them. It's all great and well and good, but the fight system in it is a 10-step fighting system. Because you have three actions, it is possible to take 10 steps, ten? Ten steps to, to resolving a fight. In, in just game. these 10 easy steps, in you will resolve... In these 10 easy steps, you get to fu- you know, resolve this fight. <laughs> And you can take this action for all three of your actions. So one person can go through 30 steps, which happened in our game. I took three fight actions in a row. <laughs> so that part, very painful. And a, f- a friend of mine and I once thought about how to ruin through the desert. You know, the Reiner Knizia's, Reiner Knizia's model of uh, straightforward simplicity. And the way we ruined it was, what if instead of placing two camels on your turn, you had 60 action points? And you could spend one action point to rotate a camel one hex side and 29 action points to place a camel. Sounds like it was well on its way. Well on its way. (laughs) So that being said, you never actually felt under threat because once there was three enemy cards out, it just stopped. So if no one fought enemies, it wasn't like this crazy buildup and you had to get your army ready or else something bad would happen. It It was just fight them so you can get victory points. And therefore, it just felt like a stock market manipulation game. It's like... This big fight's going to happen. I'm just going to take losses because I already got all my all my points out of the fighting. So I'm just going to pull out of the stock market now because I've already made all my money. So over overall, it just felt very flat. We've been having a lot of games with 
fighting in them, where the enemies just sit around waiting for you to do something. That was one of our problems with Edge of Darkness. That was one of the problems with Black Angel. It's just, if you're going to have enemies in a semi-cooperative environment, they had better be menacing. If it's going to be, if you're going to have enemies in it, even if they do just the basic thing where, you know, when it's your turn, you know, they fire down this lane or fire up across, as long as they're doing something that's going to hinder you if you let them build up. Anyway, that was Warband Against the Darkness. Fell flat. I got to try Ragusa, Ragusa by Fabio Lopiana, here, he of Kalamala, and I was looking forward to trying it. And honestly, it was uh, much more visually engaging than Kalamala is. Kalamala is uh, very much like the, uh, the, the box of your Joe Louis, exploring new shades of brown in sepia, uh, but cutting new ground there in Euro, Euro visual design. Ultimately, I was a little bit disappointed, and here's why. Because one of the ways in which we felt, or I felt certainly, that Kalamala stepped above the sort of multiplayer solitaire Euro blandness that you sometimes get in action selection games was it's very easy in the context of area majority scoring to introduce that direct competition. And one of the big differences between Ragusa, which, by the way, is not about the garment trade in America. I thought it was Rag USA. I was very confused. <laughs> My colleague thought that it was uh, actually about thick tomato-based sauces in Italian cuisine. Uh, we were all very disappointed to discover that none of this was true. You have an action selection mechanism that is also clever, kind of like Kalamala, and also encourages you to draft off of other people like Kalamala. But at the end of the day, the way you get points is more or less about buying these cards from a river, which is somewhat interactive, but not particularly so, and building this wall around the edge of the city, which can be a little interactive, but not particularly so. So it was quick and direct, very much like Kalamala was, and got a lot of mileage out of a sparse rule set. But I, at the end of the day, most of what I had going for it was a kind of a clever action system and a clever drafting element, which Kalamala had, and I preferred the fact that Kalamala had more direct interaction in these tight area majority competitions across multiple spectra. So I enjoyed giving it a shot, but ultimately, given its level of familiarity and the superiority of the prior offering, I'm probably going to be sticking with Kalamala. I would, I would say with Ragusa, um, I, I, I was not particularly hot on it as well. Um, but another Capstone Games uh, published effort. And, you know, you, were, you did mention that Irish Gage is, of course, you know, also a gorgeous thing. That was my main... Uh, were you not um, even... Was there any way the game could worm into your heart ever so slightly with its gradual build-up of wooden buildings with the uh, art asset of a Mediterranean town in dappled sunshine? Um... I, I hate to break it to you, Quinns, but if you want a game about building up a city along the Mediterranean, let me tell you there are several thousand that are available for you, sir. And uh, honestly, yes, the, the, the production was very charming, um, but if you get the deluxe uh, strongholdy buildings of Kalamala, you do at least get those more brown, of course, but you do get those that lovely 3D effect. So there's some visual appeal to be had in Kalamala, not none. And honestly, again... When you can have a clever action system with player with a lot of good player interaction or without, I'll take the one with any day of the week. I, I, I no argument for me whatsoever. I I, I think I'm just I'm, I was somewhat moved when I was playing Ragusa because of course you know when I came into the board game industry in 2011, everyone was already making fun of trading in the Mediterranean as a theme. What, what Ragusa showed me is if you because of course it's trading in the Mediterranean, but. The, 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 this is going to sound very silly, but the art assets of the olive oil look so delicious, and then the fish is so shimmering and shiny. There's crates of furs coming in, and I thought, hey, this is... I'm hot for this. this the, uh, okay, well, first of all, family show. Secondly, <laughs> as far as the art assets are concerned, I actually remember very distinctly that the art asset for olive oil just looked like a greasy, dangling sack. 
without putting too fine a point on it. No, seriously, I was mildly disturbed by, first of all, the fact that it was difficult to differentiate from some of the other advanced resources, and it really didn't look very appealing. It looked like someone took uh, one of those lovely pouch dumplings uh, that, that, that some Chinese food offers and then basically left it in the cast-off oil from a deep fryer after it had been turned off. Uh, so, Are we playing the same game? I was playing a game about the garment industry in, the Amer- in America. What were you playing? <laughs> Maybe you were staring at a jar of, uh, of, pa- of pasta sauce. That's the, uh, that's the possibility. What I do want to say is Kalamala is in the Shut Up and Sit Down library, so definitely go out and try it out. It is a fantastic little game. Uh, I was able to play... Oh, sorry, whose turn is it? It's I've completely lost it. It's, it's me? It totally is. It's me? Uh, I was able to play Flash Duel recently. Um, a friend of uh, Shut Up and Sit Down, a uh, designer of uh, Bargain Quest and Power Rangers Heroes of the Grid, Jonathan Ying, um, I, uh, it helped me in my journey uh, to play all fighting games now because what happened? Shut Up and Sit Down covers Combo Fighter and then we were barraged by uh, comments from every possible corner of the board game community saying, have you played X? Have you played fighting game X? Apparently, there isn't a one-on-one sort of video game-style fighting game that does not have a die-hard community who will uh, leave a comment with no less than four exclamation marks. So, as that, this latest step of my journey, I played Flash Duel with David Serlin um, from Serlin Games, naturally. Uh, so, Flash Duel is a tight little uh, card game uh, with a deck made up of the numbers one to five appearing five times. Um, players also have a hand of five cards. They choose their character, and then they stand on a board with 20 spaces. Uh, so, on your turn, while characters have unique abilities, the basic uh, nuts and bolts of the game are you can play a number and move that many spaces. Or, if you play a number from one to five and your opponent is, ex- is exactly that many spaces away, you attack them. So, if you're five places away, I play a five. I come at you with a five, which is presumably a five-strength flying kick, I'm not sure. You can then block that with a five, or if you don't, you're dead. Uh, uh, so, there, I was, uh, that was the point in the rules explanation where it was like a key turning in a lock, and I went, oh... Uh, so it's a card game that, um, if anything, it was less of a sort of fighting game, more like a, a knife fight or a gunfight, this idea that you only need to land one hit. Would, would you say it was kind of like a duel with, with duelists and swordsmen on a board, perhaps? I would say, you know, it's funny, it's as if... It's as would if, you say en garde before it, the start of the game? You maybe? might say... Uh, I feel like I've stepped into something. Yeah, you know, when Jonathan was teaching me the game, he did say that, um, that uh, he, he made a point of mentioning that en garde was mentioned in the manual as something of an inspiration. Here's the thing, though. Can, can we talk about this as a digression? Yeah, no, let's do it. Allow, allow me to preach at you real quick. Um, don't worry, there'll be more later. <laughs> first edition Flash Duel. I, you, it sounds like you played the second edition. Or maybe it had the first, like not the characters. third, because the third changed the card count rather significantly. Haven't played it. Uh, the first edition credited En Garde by Reiner Knizia in the rule manual, because Flash Duel is En Garde with special powers, and a couple of extremely minor differences. So naturally, because it's a ripoff of a Reiner Knizia game, it's still pretty good. And <laughs> in the second edition, David Serlin omitted the credit to Reiner Knizia in the rulebook because he felt he had sufficiently changed the formula that now it was his. We can agree or disagree about whether that's the case. What I will take him to task for is in his designer diary on Penny Arcade, he publicly says that Ongal is kind of boring. And that's not cool. Wow. You don't get to do that when you're explicitly riffing on someone else's design. So I, I've never forgiven him for that, and it's been over 10 years. Uh, stuff like that's not nice. And uh, I realize that David Serlin is com- comes from the fighting game community, 
and the fighting game community's normal method of discourse is ethnic slurs and misogynistic comments. Ooh, I so, will, I will stand up for the FGC and that say that while there's certainly some dirty and filthy corners of it, there are a lot of fantastic people who I will not let you slight like that. Sure. I'm sorry. I'm painting, I'm painting with a very, very broad brush. Uh, a, a sort of paint cannon, perhaps. Yes. And I'm also probably responding to the fighting game community of about 20 years ago, back when I played competitive fighters. So I'm very much out of date. I will, however, point out that that was David Serlin's defense every time he gets caught in something inappropriate. He's like, well, I'm from the fighting game community. We talk differently where, where I'm from. Uh, so you're quite right. I apologize. I retract the comment. Uh, I mean, and we my can... sincerest apologies to the community. Tiger, tiger, tiger. Hey, <laughs> you know, let me help you out here. David Serlin, he's a dick. Uh, <laughs> However, also, while even playing Flash Duel, I was saying to my friend that um, I was kind of frustrated because the theme of a fencing game suits it better. You only need to, like, land one touch, and then, you know, you presumably skewered your opponent. It's, it's the way that you go back and forth. It's, yeah. the, it's the, you know, placing feet on the board. It's... Have you seen the Ferti edition? The 3D Ferti edition with metal miniatures and a, a tiled board? Ooh, no, that sounds fantastic. It is super gorgeous, sir. Okay. Well, yeah, no, but uh, I would love to see Flash Deal in a uh, edition that doesn't have trappings of... Uh, well, I would love to see On Guard come back. That's perhaps a better way to say it. And, of course, we're seeing all these Nizia reprints, so that would be lovely. It's got 11 games announced in essence. It's kind of crazy. I got to play a game called Cowboy Bebop Board Game Boogie. Came out this year. If you watch Cowboy Bebop, if you, love, if you watch anime, I'm sure you've seen Cowboy Bebop. And if you haven't, then don't play this game because that's all you'll get out of it. <laughs> but more on that later. So, in this game, I don't know if you've played Crossfire. It's a game where you're going to do all these different missions and you're playing a whole bunch of symbols to complete these missions. And this is what you're doing in Cowboy Bebop. They have all the popular characters and they all have their own deck. They all have their specialties like hacking or flying or picking up clues. And you're flying around all these planets to to get bounties or to complete your own missions. And I have to admit that the bounty part was cool. It's like a little bit of, you know, finding the clues and you say, okay, it has to be at this particular planet, has to be in this particular building, and it has to, you know, and it's, it's very interesting how to track them down. But to get all of that information, you have three actions, and it's an action to get to your ship, and then an action to move to another planet, and then an action to get off your ship, and there's your whole turn, and you haven't even done anything yet. And then it's all, and you don't get to upgrade your deck. So it's just the same thing over and over again. You know, okay, i got to play all these symbols. And then if there's someone there, they can add in their thing. So if you know the anime, you'll really love this game. Because it has all the places and all the characters. And and it, it makes sense. You know, you know, you do all the things. But if you don't, it is, there's really not much of a game there. It's all about moving around and really struggling to get anything done. I mean, that certainly is true to the anime. <laughs> that is also true. I guess it, you could say, well, theme. <laughs> but, but the art is great. It's all asset, art assets from the, from the show. Overall production is not too bad. They all have their own little ships they move around in. But I would, I would just strongly... We saw it come out. We talked about it you know, in, our, in one of the shows where we all we were both very excited seeing it. But we didn't have high hopes. And, and it lived up. <laughs> up to expectations. Was it was it basically fine? It was basically fine. If if you've seen the show, if you have not seen the show, then I I I think you you'd have a terrible time. 
So after the great uh, import-export controversy of 2019, in which some of my very favorite swaggers reached out to inform me that I was desperately wrong about preferring Glory to Rome, despite the fact that they never played Glory, Glory to Rome, <laughs> uh, I went back to Glory to Rome, so I dusted off my old black box copy and showed it to a whole bunch of people. And uh, yeah, I'd just like to say um, my recollection that Glory to Rome was vastly better is correct. Glory to Rome is vastly better. Uh, the It is smoother. It is more interactive. You get to play more with building powers. The play, the building powers are slightly better. There's no strange grafted on auction element. And I love me some auctions. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, I introduced it to a couple people. Went great. Knocked out a couple quick games. Glory to Rome. Fabulous game. Of course, most people, uh, now know Carl Chodick more from his more recent outputs, things like innovation, which may or may not have something to do with some of the prizes that we have available. Uh, and Carl Chodick tableau builders, I never get tired of when we were talking about tableau builders in the show. I kept thinking, I have not been playing enough Carl Chodick tableau builders. So I was glad to get Glory to Rome back to the table. A 15 year old game that holds up really, really well. It's a bit crazy. It's a bit wild, but that's part of the fun. Uh, if you can track down a copy, it's kind of crazy out of print, so I know that one of us won't want to talk about it. But if you know some, even the one with the garish art, yes, the first editions had clip art and it was all gradients as far as, uh, as you can see, and weird clip art borrowed ass- art assets. Still a really solid game. I highly recommend it. Boy to Rome. I was able to play Labyrinthos uh, recently. This is a design by Lindsay Road that is on Kickstarter, uh, potentially still when this, uh, when this podcast comes out. Who knows? Or on its way to development. Uh, this is, uh, interestingly, an all-female uh, team, uh, but more importantly, it's a game about uh, being fed to the Minotaur, but you're not, ooh, ooh, help me out. Who's the guy who actually kills the Minotaur? Theseus? Theseus oh. kills the Minotaur? Thank you very much, sir. Theseus is in the audience today. Thank you, Theseus. <laughs> Um, but uh, uh, Lindsay was keen to point out to us that uh, you are not Theseus. You are just some people who are put in a labyrinth with a very, very, very angry man-bull hybrid. Uh, this is a race game in which you have a variety of uh, action points that you can spend on your turn in the style of, I don't know, uh, the Mask Trilogy games. Um, but unlike action points, you have hands and feet. And at the end of every turn, you can determine how many hands or feet you want. So, for example, you can just go, I want seven feet. Um, just like in real life. Um, but if you have seven feet, feet are spent moving you around the labyrinth, okay? Or exploring dark tiles, which means the board is entirely dark and all the tiles are flipped over. When you step into a new space, you uh, orient it. Um, now, this is great because if you want to leave the labyrinth this, in this race game, you have to find and arrive at the four keys and then get back to the center. At the end of your turn, you also move the Minotaur, but we'll get to that. Um, the uh, other thing you can do, that if you have hands... Hands are spent playing cards from your hands, which is fitting, but also rotating tiles. Also healing, because you will get damage, and then this is the really neat mechanic in the game. When you move the Minotaur at the end of your turn by rolling the Minotaur dice, or accidentally stepping onto a trap, or deliberately, because sometimes there might be a trap between you and the key, you take a wound. And when you take a wound, you have to cover up one of the seven actions on your board. Additionally, when you get one of the keys, they give you a really good action. For example, spend use two hands to rotate four tiles in one direction or whatever. In fact, uh, there are 16 different powers because every key has four different powers. And when you get to a key, you pick which of the powers you want. But when you get a key, you cover up one of the seven actions on your board, whether that's exploring, moving, healing, rotating tiles, uh, removing walls, that kind of thing. So... As you uh, progress, you have this sort of push your luck element of deciding what you are removing from your own sheet. Every time you take a wound, you decide what to cover up. And in fact, you can choose to place a wound on the space on your board, which is heal a wound. 
giving you maximum mobility, but also if you take any more wounds, you will eliminate yourself in the game. And excellently, you know, when talking to the designer, uh, her and I are on the same page, that we both adore games where you can push your luck to the point that your luck snaps in half, you're completely out of the game, and it was your choice. You have the freedom to have a terrible time. Um, but more importantly, you have the freedom to express yourself and go hell for leather. Uh, and, of course, you know, you have things like players putting walls in your way or in a Wizwar style, players rotating tiles, um, which actually makes it a, uh, Lindsay was saying, we played it with four, which was maybe a little slower than I'd like. I think maybe three or two. Two would probably be a fantastic sort of sweet spot. Um, because, uh, yeah, the, it was, it was the, not just action selection, but future action selection with deciding what your ratio of hands to feet should be. Uh, it's, it's really a risk reward game. It's a risk reward waste game in a, in a lovely wrapper. And I, I had a really good time with it. Can I ask it just a point of clarification? So it's the case that every player, <laughs> plays a character with varying numbers of hands and feet, usually in excess of two, and the bull guy is the monster? <laughs> uh, what can I tell you? I mean, I, I, I think we all felt quite fond of the Minotaur okay. uh, by the end. Because, of course, you know, most of the time you're using him to, you know, bounce your friends into walls. Excellently, I had to leave the game, but I was informed the way the game was won by, as all the players had their keys, one person was just one space away from the exit rolled the Minotaur dice, and when the Minotaur attacks you, he bounces you into the next space. So it was this thematic but also hilarious ending that he attacked himself with the Minotaur, the Minotaur, you know, knocked him away, and then knocked him into the exit, and he won! Hooray! <laughs> Thanks, Minotaur! <laughs> nice. Uh, so that was Labyrinthos, and uh, yeah, I also, uh, very, this is a very small order of business, but the miniatures, which are standees, um, have uh, silhouettes, which I can only describe as innovative and striking. Imagine... All the characters are actually shaped like letters of the Greek alphabet. But so, for example, you might have a, a shield. And this enormous sort of like rectangular shield means that in the art of your character, because you're hunched and you have a shield, your character is almost entirely rectangular. Or some characters are triangles or trapezoids. But in a, in a, because of how they're drawn, I'm not an artist. I can't describe art. Let me tell you, it's dope. <laughs> but, uh, are they going to put that on the box? <laughs> let me tell you, dot, dot, dot. It's dope. Quinton Smith. Speaking, you did risk-reward. I'll switch to my last one, which is risk-reward, because I want to warn people. It's a game called Quacks of Quiddlenburg. I think, I think you might have misspoke there. I purposely did, because I'm hoping people will not buy it. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> anyway, the risk-reward part is the fantastic part of this game. You're making this cauldron of a potion or a spell or whatever you're doing. And you're drawing out of a bag. We love bag builders. It is a bag builder game. More on that in a minute. And you put out these tokens and you advance along the spiral and the tokens let you go further and further out and they combo up and they have all sorts of different things. But you're drawing randomly out of the bag. So it's, it's a deck builder, really, per se. And in normal deck builders, you have a choice of 10 cards that you can buy from and you don't have that in this game. So you, there is no de, there's no real decision space because the only decision space that you've got is buying tokens for your bag because otherwise you're drawing out of the bag. So now you only have five things to choose from and it goes up to six and seven I think later on. But that being said, in deck builder you're going to go through your whole deck. In this you just draw from the bag until you bust or you're finished and then the tokens go back in. And like we've talked about before, the best bag builders out there you go through your whole bag. And then you refresh. This one, you do not do that. You just draw brand new every time. Being a more moderate individual than Walker, ke less keen to... Uh... Oh! 
Congratulations. Congratulations, sir. Go claim your prize. There are lots more prizes to be had. You may peruse what is available to you. Moving on. Uh, I agree with Walker that it's best when things cycle through. And I, I wouldn't necessarily be quite so harsh as Quacks of Kreblingberg. Something so evanescent, so insubstantial doesn't deserve that much ire. But ultimately, uh, I, I feel that really the, the, the randomness is dialed up to 11 because you don't draw through your entire bag. You know, you're, you're basically, when you purchase new assets, they go into this large pool, maybe they'll ever come out, maybe you'll never see them ever at all. This was also one of the reasons why I prefer Hyperborea to uh, Orléans, for what it's worth. Because Orléans, you also don't cycle through your bag in the same way. I mean, I agree that it's that it's that it's not particularly good, but but calm down, man. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying. I'm just saying as a game it doesn't need a PSA to prevent people. From, sorry to interrupt. Just just because it's me, but it, it's building up and it's, it's great. Everyone's having fun. Don't get me wrong. The, 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 <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Everyone's having fun, but it's, it's bad the most fun and you I've ever had. It's terrible and never should do it. We talked about this just before. There's 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 games and then there's experiences or events. This is a great event. People are having fun. You draw it from a bag. It's very, you know, you know, bust or not. Yeah. But as for a game, I don't think the mechanics are there or the randomness is too great. You like know, on my last turn, I was out after like four chits in the last turn, which took me right out of the game. They, they had like 15 minutes left of drawing. I just drew rarely poorly. I had bad luck, which, you know, could be all right. But as an experience for a player, it was not that fun. Rather than taking the bait and defending this game, I'm trying to remember what game it was, which um, we had internet commenters. We reviewed something, and people were frustrated and referred to it as double random because it was a deck builder where the card you got was random, and then there was a, a dice roll associated with it. But I cannot for the life of me remember. I think I just threw up a little in my mouth. <laughs> but it was, no, it was, but actually, it was the... That, that always frustrated me because it was it was a misunderstanding of the maths of it. You know, just if there's if there are two gates you have to go through of you know drawing a card then rolling a dice, that's not double random. It's not more random than a game where you just draw a card. It just means there are two steps of the process. You know, if, I mean, is a is a dice roll multiple? I mean, is a dice roll more random because you shake it in your hand and then you throw it, then it rolls in the dice? Triple random, like. I mean, anyway, what I'm saying is, you two are idiots, and you t- no one should listen to them about cracks of quadling. But however. What I will take out with, how are we mentioning this game in the same sentence as Hyperborea and Orléans? Like, really, what you're doing in Cracks of Quedlinburg is you're not building a bag, you're building a dice. It's the same as the Arkham Horror Living Card game, where, no, you don't empty the bag, but instead you are adding sides to a sort of enormous hypothetical dice. Like a 30-sided die. Yeah, that's what you're building. It's not a bag builder, it's a dice builder, but the dice is a bag. I'll... I'll stick. I'll stick with roll a six when a cookie. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, no. The, the reason cookies? why we the reason why we mention it in the context of bag builders is because you can leverage lots of interesting things with bag builders, and Quacks doesn't. You're right. You are building a die, and we have better things to do than just chuck a die over and over and see who rolls better. I'm not gonna. There's a mega game going on next door that's producing all kinds of fascinating noises. Indeed. And an IMAX above us, which we didn't know when we built this theater. All kinds of amazing, great things have happened at this shucks. So, um, one thing I will say, though, just on the subject, because I don't think it gets anywhere near enough credit, and I don't believe you two play it, despite the fact that, well, I want to say it's up your street in terms of theme, but I know you don't like it. But the Arkham Horror Living Card Game does do some absolutely magnificent stuff with the campaign-long construction of its bag. I don't know if you two know about this, but um, you know there are actually moral decision points in the Arkham card game, which can add symbols to your, the bag, which is essentially the dice you use for that came, campaign, which none of which I want to spoil. 
but is profoundly thematic, fascinating, and it's kind of like escape rooms. Escape rooms do great things, but then you can't talk about them, which means no one gives them the kudos that they deserve. I, I have heard wonderful things about the Arkham Horror LCG, uh, among them from Walker. I'm just so sick to death of grubbing for clues and shooting Amigo in the face with a shotgun. Uh, Fantasy Flight has been having me do that for years and years and years, and maybe the campaign element adds great stuff, but I'm also sick to death of campaign elements, so it's, it's just, that's just a personal thing. You two will relate to this. My friend says the best possible retheme for the Arkham Horror LCG is Hellboy the card game. Mechanically, it's perfect. Okay. But uh, that's another conversation that I will have with you as soon as this podcast is over. Sure. So I just have a simple question for the audience. Uh, so there's Francis Tresham, visionary game designer who invented the 18xx games and also invented civilization games as we know them. Uh, Sid Meier ain't nothing. It's all about Tresham. Do any of you think you're better than Francis Tresham? Because you're not. <laughs> and let me tell you, I've been playing lots of games recently, and one of them I'll talk about by people who think they know better than Francis Tresham, and they don't. Uh, so Ancient Civilizations of the Inner Sea, uh, which was put out recently by GMT Games, Walker's favorite game publisher. Do you have anything to say about that, Walker, and make the audience happy? No, not at all, Mark. They're fantastic. Their cover art is amazing. It makes you lure to the game. It's like, how can you not buy this game? Moving right along. Yeah. You've, you've done your job. We have another bingo. Hey! You brought him over the edge. Good job, Walker. See the things I do for you. Here's the thing. Civilization, I could talk about for hours, but one of the great things about the original Civilization by Francis Tresham is you have this pool of tokens that represent either people that can be on the map or tokens in your treasury. And at a certain point, your civilization gets decadent because you've spread out over the map and you've got lots of cities. And so as to encourage careful management and prevent stagnation, you might run into tax revolts because your tokens exhaust. If you didn't have tax revolts in civilization, you might lead to stagnation, where you just have cities built up, everyone's got their little empires, combat is too costly to go after somebody else's city, so you just sit on your nine cities and call it a day. That's ancient civilizations of the inner sea. There's no consequence for running out of tokens, there's no good reason for going after everyone else's cities, and there's no trading, so there's no player interaction in that way. And the way they decided to solve this problem of no player interaction is they just layer on this incredibly arbitrary take-that-card game right on top of the civilization system. And the cards are bonkers, bananas, amazeballs, ranging all the way from, in this particularly very rigidly constrained circumstance, gain this minor benefit to whack somebody upside the head so hard they're going to be feeling it for years. And I'm sick to death of, of take that elements grafted onto things in an effort to introduce a little bit of variance and a little bit of player interaction. Uh, Jim Felly's, I've said this before, Jim Felly's Door of the Lesser Houses has spoiled me for Take That Card games forever and always. Have you tried anything by Devious Weasel, Quince? No, I'm actually, uh, did you say this was a GMT game? This is a GMT, Ancient Civilization of the Inner It's by Mark McLaughlin, who put up the vastly better uh, Napoleonic Wars, particularly the second edition. Also very wild, but at least uh, vastly better. And a first-time designer whose name is uh, Mr. Brugge, so... They're also going to be spinning this off into other systems. It's going to be ancient civilizations of the Middle East. Not looking forward to that one. As, as someone who uh, you know listens to the podcast uh, and usually has an extremely strong mental image, it's, so this is a GMT war game? No, it's, it's a not, GMT card game. No. Uh, it wants to be a card game, and it might have been better as a card game, but it, very much like Civ, it's got a relatively abstracted area map of, uh, well, you know, the Mediterranean and North Africa, like we've been doing for, for generations. And you spread out with your disc, and there's the potential for conflict, and as I say, there's just this uh, uh, take-that-card game grafted right on top of the thing. And 
I give credit where credit is due. I love the fact that GMT will publish these non-historical simulationist things, very much like when they first published Leaping Lemmings and the world's minds exploded because GMT was publishing a game called Leaping Lemmings. Uh, but this game is just bad. And the worst part is, the kicker is, uh, it's going to take you longer than many short scenarios of Civ. You're talking about four, five, six hours maybe? Play Francis Tresham's Civ. Don't play this thing. In fact, play anything by Francis Tresham rather than most anything by anyone else. I just played Western Empires for the first time recently. And what did you think? No, it's good. I, I was going to be mean because you, you two have been ribbing me uh, and joyfully uh, for some time. But uh, no, it is good. Um, the weirdest thing about it is that we played it for 12 hours in an English pub and no one said anything. Like, which is almost... How did the trading go? Did you communicate in semaphore? There were, no, there were 11 of us. Actually, no, it was funny because mostly, uh, it was all new players. So mostly we traded with the sort of six players sat immediately adjacent to us. And if anyone stood up, it was because they had a handful of horrible calamities. So when someone walks up to you and goes, hey, Celts, how are you doing? It means, I'm going to give you a barbarian uprising. So it was hilarious. As soon as you stood up, everyone burst out laughing. <laughs> It, I mean, look, the original Civ and as, as, as seen in Western Empires and Eastern Empires and Mega Civ, the two of which combined to form Mega Civ, uh, it doesn't, it, it feels its age to a certain extent. It does, yeah. Uh, but it is absolutely a singular experience in the kinds of subtle trade-offs that you get. And honestly, again, going back to the, the whole tapestry thing, to feel the overall arc, the grand sweep of civilization development from small tribes to, to expansion to decadence, to then trying to build a dynasty, it's, uh, it, it really is impressive. Mm. I'm, I'm glad you kind of liked it, but the fact that nobody talked is weird. Uh, you know, no, uh, there was, I, I'm being a little unfair. The funny thing is, when we finished it, obviously we were exhausted. It's not a 12-hour game. Um, but uh, I met up with a lot of players, you know, just in the course of hanging out over the few weeks, and we, we, were, we, found we were all still thinking about it. Oh, we're yeah, still talking about it, and we're going to play. We're going to play again. That's wonderful. Uh, I encourage you to track down the original Avalon Hill Civ uh, for a smaller, tighter experience. So it works at four or five. Great stuff. You can play the shorter scenarios on the AST. Anyway, um, and just a final capper before I uh, shut up forever. Uh, <laughs> it's it's been a great con for some of the old classics. Got to play Pax Ren. We got to play together Hansa Teutonica and Tigers and Euphrates, which obviously made us both very happy. Uh, I didn't get. I haven't yet had a chance to play Citadel Confluence, despite desperately wanting to. Thank you haven't you, played it yet? I haven't played Citadel Confluence. Walker, you want to play Citadel Confluence with us? Sorry. It, no. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so it's been a great time for, for new games and uh, old classics as well, so uh, that's what I've been playing this week. That's fantastic. I'm so glad you found a few things. Let's move on to some news and why it really doesn't matter. So we already talked about Cowboy Bebop, which is an anime. I'm going to talk about an anime called The After School Dice Club. You might say, well, Mike, why do I care about anime? It's very cute and stuff, but what does that have to do with me? Well, Mr. Center of the Universe, or Mrs. <laughs> or Ms. or Mix. Or Ms. or Mix, thank you. This, our hobby was just introduced to 40 million people at once by this anime. It's just not an anime where off in the distance they play this abstract, you know, shape game where they say we're playing a board game. They actually went to a board gaming store that had the games we play on the shelves, code names, you know, all of the games that we play. Then they sat down and played an actual game and went through the rules and showed people how to play. This is going to be a huge boost. I don't know if people understand how much of a huge boost this is going to be to our hobby. 
Uh, you know, I was just actually, because of shucks, um, I was on uh, CBC uh, on Friday, broadcasting all across Canada, um, talking about shucks, talking about board games. Uh, tragically, I, it didn't occur to me. I also didn't know I'd be broadcast across the whole country. Um, but uh, I now feel very self-conscious that, of course, at one point in the interview, said, well, what should they play? And I went to a couple of shut-up-and-sit-down standbys, which are Sheriff of Nottingham and Lords of Vegas. The former of which I don't even know if is in print. Um, but the main thing is that I, it was a crushing weight of responsibility of what do you introduce to a country, like truckers driving, you know, or like mothers, you know, cooking or whatever. Mothers mothering. Mothers mothering, dads daddering. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, what, what would you two have picked if, if you know... We would have picked to remain anonymous and unknown. So, so far, we're doing really well. <laughs> oh, I would have probably picked, uh, to, you know, just to answer your question, probably like a cockroach poker or... That would have been a better answer. Or, you know, the Evil Seven or Code Names. Code or, Names. Uh, coyote, or, even though the theme is... Or a Canadian, a Canadian design like Miss Poutine. Miss Poutine, yeah, Miss Poutine. Miss Poutine? It is a real-time game in which you try to serve people uh, French-Canadian fast food. We've got to get that in the library. It's by Le Scorpion Masky. Oh, that's one of my new favorite, favorite designers. Yeah, they do, everything they're putting out, I've been... Uh, pu- publisher, publisher. That's good, what I meant good, to say. Good, good, good call. It good comes call. in a bucket. It's very yeah. nice. That's, that's definitely the first time that sentence has been said. <laughs> Brief news update. We talked uh, a while ago, or I did, about how Kemet was working on a 1.5 rulebook that changes none of the components, just changes the rulebook and some of the player aids. It is now available in English. Go find it if you're interested in slight rules te- tweaks to commit one of the best dudes on a map game is ever, best dudes on a map game ever made. Uh, go forth it is now available to anglophones everywhere. I don't have any news. Fair enough. I don't. <laughs> you, what you're saying is you have nothing useful to say. Well, surprise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. I, I saw on Board Game Geek there's a game coming out called Cooper Island. It looks like a fantastic piratey trading game. Looks like it might have some inklings of uh, Castle of Burgundy. It's going to be coming out soon. Take a look at it. It looks like it's going to be fantastic. It's by Frosted Games. That's all I've got. Okay, there's one more final bit of news, and I'd like to apologize in advance. Um, I do actually, all jokes aside, seriously now, in earnest, I do take the fact that we have a bit of a platform seriously, and I, we do try to think about how to use that. There is a gaming hook here. I'm still a consumer at heart in lots of ways. I play consums. I play war games, despite the fact that I'm an anti-war pacifist. Uh, and I think that in investigations of violence, a lot of board games can do more than they do. There's the epic-making Meltwater, which is fabulous. But I, in many ways, I think the digital medium is doing far better. Things like Spec Ops The Line, things like The Walking Dead Season 1, that really investigate what it is to deploy violence, what it is to be engaged in these kinds of activities that we, that we play games in all the time. Twilight Struggle was pretty good at this, too, in many ways. I've talked about this last year. On the 27th of October in 1962, a man by the name of Vasily Arkhipov single-handedly saved the entire world. No exaggeration, no hyperbole. He saved the human race because he was on a diesel-powered submarine during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he stared down a superior officer and a subordinate who had both authorized a nuclear launch against the United States of America. And he alone was the dissenting vote in... A, a vessel that was being pounded by depth charges and in 140-degree Fahrenheit heat. He said, no, we had better surrender rather than deploying a nuclear weapon against our enemy. For this, he more or less spent the rest of his career in disgrace. And I think that there should be a statue to this man in every city in the world because we all owe our lives to him. No slight against uh, uh, Stanislav Petrov. He did a similar thing. But this was a soldier who stared down a superior officer and said, no, we surrender instead. 
And when I say that he saved the entire world, this is not me engaging in hyperbole or anticipating what the response would have been. Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, agrees with me that had that launch occurred, the world would have ended on that day. And so I hope that you'll join me on the 27th of October celebrating Arkhipov Day because the man deserves a holiday. The man deserves recognition. You may think that a variety of other people have done great things, and I certainly agree. And I'm not going to glorify the soldier's life, but the man deserves our thanks and some recognition. And the fact that most people haven't heard of him is a disgrace. Uh, so on the 27th of October, that's the anniversary of his heroism. I owe him my life. We all owe him our lives. 27th of October, Arkhipov Day. Thanks very much for your indulgence. I apologize for hijacking the show. Did Did you still want to do questions? Yes. (laughs) I know. That's why I made him, you know, do this heavy stuff at the very end of the news. He usually does this during the show. He'll he'll start off with that. And then he'll say, (laughs) and I played Happy Dumpling Fairy Dance Game. And, yeah, it doesn't quite land so nice. So we have some great submitted questions from you guys. Mark's going to read some off, and then I guess we'll uh, try to answer them. Well, actually, we don't have a whole lot of time left. I'll start with one that I've kind of already answered. Uh, and this is uh, a question from a listener who asks, what games do you think have done satire well or who, that have dealt with very sensitive issues very well? I've already talked about Meltwater, uh, and I've talked about you know meditations on violence and how I think that the digital sphere is, is doing a little bit better than us. So I, I would ask my colleagues here, can you think of games that have really satirized something or have really dealt with a particularly sensitive issue well uh, especially in the wake of our complaining about a lot of other games that don't do it well. I mean, I can answer the former, but not the latter, because satire obviously doesn't necessarily need to be sensitive issues. Uh, and right. uh, I mean, the one person who I would call out immediately, and frankly, if we're going to have, you know, uh, bring up slightly bigger issues, uh, the bo- a friend of mine pointed this out. It's not my idea, but um, he pointed out that board gamers use theme when what they really mean is setting. And theme, and actual themes, are, are completely different from where you set your game. And uh, frankly, I think Vlada Fatil, uh, uh, you know, the Czech uh, designer, needs uh, endless kudos for giving his games setting and theme. Space Alert is not a space game. It's uh, this sort of like weird Soviet Iron Curtain Star Trek where you know, life is cheap. Alchemist is a game about studying, but it skewers the academic, you know. It's like Galaxy Trucker is a game about trucking, where, which is, I mean, it's not satire, but it's... Well, there's has, a lot of corporate satire in there, though. Oh, no, of course there is, yeah. And then there's the line that if anyone made one dollar, you all win. <laughs> you I love know? that, yeah. I mean, it's or Dungeon Pets, which is really about, I mean, there's a lot of incredibly creepy stuff about, you know, uh, rearing animals for, um, for, for commercial purposes. So just about all of Vlada's games have, are, are satiristic in some way, in a way that also you can ignore. You could play Space Alert as just like a badass, you know, uh, thing. And, but it's any discussion about satire has to have Vlada's name first and foremost, in my opinion. Also, he made code names, which is cool. <laughs> the only thing I can come off from the top of my head, and I haven't played it, but I just heard they've done great things. Is Fog of War? They've done uh, great things to you know address you know different kinds of relationships. Fog of Love. Fog of Love. Sorry. Oh yes! Wow! Wow! That was you said Fog of War. Fog of War. Now, with well, all due respect that's, that's, to Pat Benatar, right, Love that, is a Battlefield. I was going to say that's the new that's the new divorce expansion that's coming out next year. Fog of War. Anyway, yes, Fog of Love. I just heard they do great things with dealing with you know relationships and and, and diversity. Well, do you know you know he's also his next game is about midlife crises. That, that that's a, a little depressing. a little close to home. Sorry. Oh no, it's it's absolutely <laughs> wild. I mean, I it's going to change a, a great deal, but uh, it's it's a four. Pl- I pl- the early build of I played is a four player game. One of which is, oh, what you've got. The two players who are in a relationship, which may or may not go, but then two more who each play the subconscious of those players. 
<laughs> and you're trying to figure out what your subconscious wants, what your partner wants, what your partner's subconscious wants. It's, uh, it's, that sounds fabulous. It's pretty wild. Well, I, I do remember that, that could lead to some interesting sort of role play. I remember the one time we played Ladies and Gentlemen, mm. uh, where by the end of it, we looked at ourselves and we realized that we were misogynistic monsters. Well, the interesting uh, thing, to be fair to ladies and gentlemen as well, that, that is another example of satire. Exactly. It, yeah, that is a game where the servants you can buy are cheaper than the clothes you are buying. Yes, precisely. There's a lot of, I mean, I frequently mention Meltwater as, as the key instance of a game that makes you uncomfortable while playing it, and that's the point. And I definitely get that same vibe from ladies and gentlemen. It was a great experience, one that I never want to repeat. <laughs> uh, I think we probably have time for one more question. Fair enough. Uh, the other question is mostly about negative reviews, because we have, uh, we have a reputation for, for, for slagging things here, mostly, I think, on account of this guy who's willing to burn any bridge that he encounters before or after he, he crosses it. And <laughs> the, uh, the, the basic question is... Uh, are negative reviews more challenging to write than positive reviews? Do they involve a different set of skills? Do they involve flexing a different kind of mental muscle? Uh, what is it like to produce a negative review as opposed to a positive review in, the, in that context? Uh, you gestured at me. Would you like me to answer? For... I would like both. I'm curious to hear what both of you have to say. I hate negative reviews. I think they're absolutely the 100% the hardest thing to write. But although it also depends on the size of your platform. You know, there's a shut up and sit down review, which it begins and ends with us launching a game out of a window. Um, and then Paul said, uh, is, is that our copy of Infamy? And I say, yes. Is that our review of Infamy? Yes. Um, we can't do that anymore. Um, it, it would be irresponsible and it would be... Uh, a, uh, it would be bad. Um, so for me, like the larger we get, the the more pressure there is to be not even correct because we have to get subjective, but uh, to to try and feel fair. Excuse me, sir. The metaphysician tackles just got raised. Reality is subjective. Uh, ooh, nice. How 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 far do we want to go down this? Uh, I'll have you know that the blood on the clock tower people explicitly slammed Kantianism at the start of our game last night, <laughs> and I knew from then on that this, the, the deck was stacked against. It was going to be an uphill struggle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes. How about for you? Uh, it's for me. It's all just against the hype, right? If a game comes out and it's and it's getting huge reviews and and it's being pushed and it's being toted as this fantastic thing, and then I see that it's not, then I just have to say something. I, I I'm tired of people purchasing games that aren't good. <laughs> and that, I think, you know, as we, at least we can end this podcast, we can agree on that. We can be that fighting against the tide of hype is certainly a good thing. I, want, I just wanted you to reiterate what you talked about before about reaction to negative review. If we have time, to your reaction to... No, we don't. We do not. <laughs> so thank Take God we listen. We heard Mark talk enough. I would like to thank everyone for coming. Yes, thank you all so much. And I'd like to thank Quinns again for joining us up here. I hope, I hope you know you had a great time. Oh, it was my pleasure. I usually listen to so very wrong about games while I'm running, so I'm just glad I am less moist than uh, when I. <laughs> so are well, we. well, now I feel inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all. Take care. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>